Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. Sitting across the interrogation room from me today is investigative journalist and acclaimed bestseller Hank Phillippe Ryan, whose 11 award-winning novels released to eager fans and critics alike. Hank's 2014 novel, called Truth Be Told, won the Agatha for Best Mystery. The Wrong Girl won both the Agatha and the Daphne, and The Other Woman won the coveted Mary Higgins Clark, and the year it was published, it was the only novel nominated for the Agatha, Anthony, McCavity, Seamus, and Daphne Awards for Best Novel. Hank's also an award-winning investigative reporter at Boston's WHDH-TV, where she's so far collected 36 Emmys, 14 Edward R. Murrow Awards, and dozens of other honors for her groundbreaking journalism. Her work there has brought about new laws, helped send the guilty to prison, saved homes from foreclosure, and won millions of dollars in refunds and restitution for victims and consumers. She's also been a radio reporter, a legislative aide in the United States Senate, and an editorial assistant at Rolling Stone Magazine, where she worked with Hunter S. Thompson, Richard Avedon, and Richard Goodwin. Hank is a founding teacher at Mystery Writers of America University, a past national president of Sisters in Crime, and she blogs at Jungle Red Writers and a career authors. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Hank. I'm so grateful you made time to stop in and clear up a few things. Well, I, I, the interrogation room part just stopped me a little bit. I wondered, <laughs> I wondered why the lights in here were suddenly so hot. Um, that's all right. I know your techniques. All good. All good. I'm very happy to be here this morning. Thank you. I love hearing that introduction, you know, when you have a bad writing day, and we all do, um, sometimes remembering that sometimes it works. Um, is very reassuring. So um, I'm sitting here soaking that up. Thank you very much for your kind words. Now, I've recently started reading The Murder List, and this is such a fantastic book. It absolutely grabbed me right from page one and chapter one. And I wonder what you would like readers to know about this latest release. Oh, my goodness. I Thank you so much. I, uh, You know, The Murder List is a standalone um, of psychological legal suspense. And uh, one wonderful reviewer said, if John Grisham and Lisa Scottolini had a book baby, the murder list wow. would be it. And I, I love that. I think uh, that's exactly what this book is. I mean, the murder list um, is all about winning and power and manipulation. Um, and it's about how people think about Good. I mean, I don't mean to be woo-woo about theme, but when I write a novel, I not only want you to, you know, be turning the pages as fast as you possibly can and be unable to put it down, but that when you finish the book, you know, there's a moment of thinking, um, oh, I never thought about it that way, or oh, I'm so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, you really got me with that ending. And not only that, but it, it changes the way we look at the world a little bit. So anybody that has anything to do with crime or cares about crime or justice or cares about justice, um, that's or investigations, that's what the murder list is about. It's a, it's a twisty, turny triangle of suspense about um, a brilliant young law student, Rachel North, who is the world's most reliable narrator. She will tell you absolutely what she <laughs> believes to be true, that she um, is smart and savvy and she'll be successful in her second career, this one as a, a lawyer. Um, she knows this will be successful because she's married now to 
Boston's most successful defense attorney, Jack Kirkland, who's smart and savvy and knowledgeable and educated and brilliant. And she's also working as a summer intern for Martha Gardner, who is the uh, Suffolk County, that's Boston, uh, assistant Mm -hmm. district attorney, the prosecutor. And Martha Gardner um, is equally powerful and determined and manipulative and educated. So Rachel North, the young law student, is married to a defense attorney and working for the prosecution. So what could go wrong there? Um, And when a murder from Rachel's past comes to the forefront, Rachel and Jack and Martha have to decide what they want and how far they'll go to get it and who they trust um, and who will be trampled and destroyed on the way to getting what they want. Um, And they'll also have to learn who's next on the murder list. So you can see what all is involved in that Mm -hmm. truth and good and justice and power. Um, And the idea that justice doesn't come easy and that Mm -hmm. when the stakes are high, does it really matter if you're, following the rules if the result is what you want it's a murder mystery you know it's a thriller um i've just spent 27 minutes telling you about it but you know, <laughs> in the, essentially you know it's a page turning psychological um gaslighty manipulative deceptive thriller that's a, a tremendous amount of conflict that you've you've put into this story in many layers and a lot of that gets introduced right in that first chapter and i I really liked the, uh, uh, it won't spoil anything for the readers, but in the, in the first chapter, there's this um, spousal debate um, about what you were just describing, this uh, Rachel going to going to work for the prosecutor's office. And Jack talking about how, and Rachel's response to it, that he is investing in her education, that she is his investment. And having seen a little bit of the power dynamics of that in real life, it was immediately fascinating to me. I'm like, Oh, I don't know if these guys are going to make it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know, nobody ever knows if they're actually going to make it, you know, the, the mm-hmm. ricketiness of marriage, especially when the age disparity is as such as mm-hmm. it is in the murder list. Marriage is, you know, iffy enough already. Um, and when someone else has, when each person has an agenda, which we don't know what is, Um, That makes it a little even more rickety. And when, you know, when people have goals um, that aren't always clear, that's also potentially destructive. I mean, I love what you said about conflict, because certainly in every novel, every novel of suspense, every crime fiction novel um, and in real life. Right. uh, Conflict is what makes things interesting. It's sort of the engine that keeps a book in the air. Um, I think conflict means that you force your character to make a choice, to make a decision. And then as a result of that choice, um, the reader forms an opinion about who the character is. Does what the character chooses to do, um, is that what you would do? Or are you saying, oh, no, 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 that's wrong. That's a mistake. That's not fair. That's gaslighting. so I, I love that conflict and I love starting with conflict and I love that you saw that, you know, the book is about winning, you know, all lawyers want to win. All lawyers yes. think they're the, on the side of good, right? Whether you're the, whether you're the prosecutor who's standing up for law and order and protecting the public 
or whether you're the defense attorney who's standing up for the rights of the individual and making sure that they don't get trampled by the vast power of the prosecution. You know, they're, they're, they both rightly feel that they're on the side of good. And in a murder case, when somebody's going to win, um, and that's what lawyers want to do is win, it opens the door for a tremendous amount of um, not only conflict, but power grabbing and manipulation um, and doing the right doing the wrong thing for the right reason. Um, and, and how far can you push someone in that particular situation? I mean, if you ask a lawyer, what, is it, what does it mean to have a good case? They'll say winnable, that the case is winnable, um, mm-hmm. no matter what the facts or evidence uh, of the case is. So I, I think that's fascinating too, the sort of mindset that every lawyer has about I'll do whatever I I'll do whatever I have to to win. And when does someone go too far? And if it's your lawyer and you want to be found not guilty, do you care? You know, or if you're a prosecutor and you want um, and you really think this person is a danger to society, um, might you go too far? And at what point um, do we need to say you have to stop now? This is we have to play by the rules. Um, so when do the rules get tossed aside? And uh, that fascinates me in all you know realms of life. If we think, well, I did it for the right reason. What's yes. the answer to that when 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 it's when you're breaking the rules? And at some point, everyone in in those types of circumstances will be willing to some degree uh, to sacrifice the rules for for an outcome. You know, the ends will justify the means eventually. Well, yeah, and I think that's what's so what's so fascinating about all of crime fiction, truly. I think that when, you know, nobody, as we talk about all the time, nobody sets out to be the bad guy twirling their mustache and saying, I'm going to do evil stuff, right? We hear this all the time. But I do think that one of the things about being whatever bad is, is sort of incremental. You know, you someone feels that the world isn't treating them fairly or that everybody else always wins or that they never de- get dealt the good cards and they, you know, or they, they're, you know, they, they take a pencil from the supply room and then two pencils and then a box of pencils and then a ream of paper. And then, it, then you think, well, it's not really stealing. You know, I don't get paid enough money anyway. And so they owe me this. You know, or why can't I get what I want? Everybody else seems to get what they want. I'm going to do what I have to do to get what I want. So when, you know, one's own self-importance, selfishness um, Mm -hmm. twists and warps into rationalization, and that's what happens, I think. You know, we start to rationalize that what we're doing is good and okay. And that's what I'm talking about in the murder list. Um, In the murder list, people have goals. People have things they need and want, and um, they will they wind up doing anything they can to get it. And I, and I, and that's what I look for in writing every time. What does someone want and how far will they go to get it? Whether it's a prosecutor or a defense attorney or a murderer or a law student or a reporter or a judge or a state senator, you know, when you make yourself be the most important person, um, mm-hmm. that's when the problems occur. And I write in multiple points of view in, in this book three, Rachel, Jack, and Martha. So you see the world from one of their points of view, let's say Rachel, and then you see how Jack sees exactly the same situation. And then you see how Martha envisions exactly the same situation. And then you as the reader get to sort of be the jury about it. 
you know, who's mm-hmm. telling me the truth and who, where, what is true and what is right um, and what should be happening. And I, and I think, I hope, I cross fingers mm-hmm. that a, as in life, um, we're often surprised um, about the things that were right in front of us that we should have seen. Yes. Um, and then we didn't. I specifically wanted to talk to you about that and how you select your points of view to write from. Uh, this one, you know, Rachel gets, you know, to talk to us in first person. So we get, you know, that, that very close feeling to her and everyone else is presented in third. And I wondered how you decide to structure the novel or, or is it a deliberate choice or do the characters kind of help suss this out for you in the process? Oh, Gavin, good question. Good question. I, I have to tell you that when, when you ask me, how did I decide, you know, part of me wants to burst out laughing because I'm not sure there's decide. And I, I, I hesitate to say that, but Rachel's voice came to me um, very clearly in first person. This is, uh, it started out being her story and you, and you need to know that I don't have an outline. We can talk about that later if you like, but I don't have an outline. So Rachel's voice and her desires um, and her needs and wants um, came to the fore first. So I started writing Rachel and then technically the sort of writing um, necessities click in at that point. And you don't want to have uh, three main characters all who are in first person because that would be hideously confusing um, for the reader if everybody is saying I did this and I did that. So everybody would have to walk in front of a mirror all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And only one person in my, in my mind, in my writer mind, only one person can be the first person. It can be talk, can talk in first person and the, everybody else has to be third person. So that's what, that's what sort of seemed to work for me in this book. There are only three points of view only, I guess, because in some of my books, there are more, but um, I love this triangle structure of the book. Um, and that when you decide, when I decided or when the characters decided, who would be at the apex of the triangle? Are we hearing Rachel's story? Are we hearing Jack's story? Are we hearing Martha's story? As a writer that set up so many twists to the relationships, you know, if, if, if it's Rachel's story, that means Jack and Martha are in conflict as well, or maybe they're a team. You see, or are Rachel and Martha the team? Are Rachel and Jack the team? You know, when there's, when there's a threesome, you know, one of them is going to be the odd person out. Um, and depending on who the story is about, it's it's not them, right? It's somebody right. else. And so who are they going to throw under the bus um, to be the one who who's dismissed so um, or harmed or gotten rid of or done away with um, or ignored? So that sort of emotional, psychological triangle um, sort of overlaid on the legal triangle I'm just thinking about this now, but that's exactly what this book is. Um, And however the triangle turns at the moment um, may surprise you. In my own writing, I find that I am most productive with the greatest intensity and greatest word counts when there is frustration and conflict in my own life. And since you talk about not outlining your books, I wonder how the conflict in your books is affected by what's going on in, in the rest of your life without, you know, having this, this planned roadmap when you start these books out. Huh. I, 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 I think the conflict in my, in my life, um, 
since we're confessing here, has mostly been <laughs> just you and me. <laughs> and you're so good at it. Um, has mostly to do with uh, pressure and uh, overscheduling and stress of being still being an investigative reporter and trying mm-hmm. to balance my time as a writer, which is a priority, versus my time as a reporter, which is also a priority, which versus my time as a you know a wife and a good and a best friend of my husband, which is also a priority. He happens to be a criminal defense attorney. Mm-hmm. Just tuck that in your back pocket. Um, oh, it's in the notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I have to be, and I have learned. I've been a, I've been a television reporter for forty three years, uh, which is really crazy to think about, and still on the air at Channel yes. Seven in Boston. Um, and I've wired myself with hidden cameras and confronted corrupt politicians and chased down criminals and gone undercover and in disguise. But when I'm and, and all that goes into my writing, you know, of, of course it does. But when I'm sitting at my desk here writing or when I'm on an airplane, which is one of my best writing places, I'm really focused on that. I'm really in the world of Rachel, Jack and Martha when I'm writing The Murder List. And I'm not in my world there. If I have some, if I'm supposed to be doing something else, I just do something else. If I'm supposed to be writing, I just write. And I almost am in like a bubble of being in another world. I, I am in another world. I'm in the, I'm in the world of the book and I take myself out of my own world. I, you know, I know I said I use my experiences. Yes, I do. But I draw from them in a more cerebral kind of emotional kind of way rather than um, specifically clinically, if this is making any sense. It just sort of mm-hmm. um, when I'm lucky and when I'm having a good writing day, um, that kind of uh, the ideas just sort of um, emerge. And I'm often surprised about what I write. And I'm often surprised about what my characters say. Now, I, you know, I know this is my brain at work. You know, I know this is my subconscious telling me things. And that's, you know, I, I embrace that. You know, I, I embrace that. And I think sometimes when I'm having a bad writing day, which is a lot of the time, um, I'm trying to force it, you know. Um, and sometimes when I, if, if I can train my brain to sort of let go and just tell the story, that's when I'm successful. You know, as a as an investigative reporter, I'm out looking for the story. I'm searching for the story. If I knew what the story was, it wouldn't be news. You know, I'm looking for something new. And as a, and, and I, as a writer, that's I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking for the story. And if I keep looking and asking questions and going new places, you know, in my brain even, um, then the story at some point, uh, knock on wood, come comes out. Um, it's never what I expect. Even when I think I expect something, it isn't what I expect. Um, and that, you know, Sue Grafton used to call that the magic. And I really think she was right about that. Um, we're working and we're thinking, and we have a structure in our head of what um, a story is. You know, we, we know how a story needs to be. Um, and I think uh, you know, ever since hearing Once Upon a Time, you know, we have that. <laughs> yes. So um, all that together is what allows me to write. So I, this is the world's longest answer, forgive me, but I put myself in the world of the book, not in the world of my life. Uh, and so far that seems to work. Talking about the creative genius or the, the magic, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert uh, wrote Eat, Pray, Love, talks about 
her perspective on creative genius and it's it being a separate entity from her, largely to protect her ego from the pressure of past success. And I wonder, in your life and in your writing, how do you deal with putting out a new book every year with all of the success that last year's book had and whether that's a new yardstick or benchmark for the success of your next work? <laughs> I'm, I'm speechless here. The, the, the pressure of past success has not been something that's actually affected me <laughs> that, that much. You know, I, um, it, it, it's a great question. And I got a little bit goosebumps hearing um, Elizabeth Gilbert's quote and fear. And I think what one, another thing that's really interesting about that is how even somebody like that, even somebody who's wildly successful, um, and would never have to write another word in her entire life, still fears not being good enough. Um, and that is something that I will admit to you that I, it's not that I don't think I'm good enough. It's that I want to be better every time. And I think that's the pressure of it. You know, as writers, we all have to grow and develop and learn. And, you know, I so in every book, I'm trying harder and harder and harder to think, how can I make this book be better? How better than any other book I've ever written? Better than any book that anybody else has ever written, frankly. Um, how can I make it uh, suspenseful and riveting and compelling and surprising and fair and rich and textured and important and educational and illuminating and unputdownable? How can I do that? And you know, another Sue Grafton quote. I mean, she'd say, "Get over yourself." You know, <laughs> it's just a book. You know that, and yeah, and she was totally right about that. And sometimes that saves me too. But I, I think that after all these years as a reporter, my job as a reporter is to not only get the best story that I possibly can, but to sort of beat everybody else with it. You know, there's mm -hmm. the challenge of the scoop, yep. and and that I'm that isn't lost on me every day. So. I want my readers to stand up and cheer when they finish my new books um, because I, because they'll say, I, you know, this was so great. I missed my stop on the bus because I was reading this book. And that's what I hope for, for the murder list. Um, and every time I want the book to be better. And so when you talk about past successes, I'm, I, my benchmark for me is myself. How can I do something that I've never done before? And, and how can I, grow as a writer. I mean, I, I teach a lot of writing seminars and I also attend, um, you know, the other classes on seminar days that other authors give. And I always learn something, don't you? I always yeah. learn something yeah. um, because I think that sometimes the universe gives us what we need at the time that we need it. And that is all part of the writing process. Pivoting over to your other day job as an investigative journalist or our nation's incredibly divided right now, certainly as much as it, I think it's ever been in my lifetime. And, you know, it seems to me fractured along, along numerous societal fault lines. For my money, one of those divisions that I think gets uh, a bit overplayed is the relationship between the press and the police, especially for someone such as yourself. For writers who have such elements in their work in progress, I hoped you could talk about your experience with the police, even though, I mean, that's a, a homogenous fallacy, but with the cops and, and dealing with uh, investigators as an investigative journalist? Yeah, you know, um, I have relationships with police officers or all kinds, you know, lots of people in law enforcement that are completely congenial and completely friendly and completely um, mutually respectful. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I think we uh, understand each other's jobs sometimes more than we let on. And we, yes. but, but I do have to admit that when it comes to being, you know, when I'm doing an investigation or when they're doing an investigation and when those two worlds collide, there is some animosity, um, frankly, and there mm-hmm. should be, I guess, I mean, I'm trying to find out something that they don't want me to find out, you know, that that's sort of the bottom line of it. You know, they're doing an investigation and I'm in the way so often. So, um, you know, I understand that and I think they understand it too. And there's sort of a, if it can be sort of a humorous understanding that this is never going to change and that I'm going to try my hardest to find out whatever I can find out. And they're going to try their hardest to sort of do their job, which includes getting me the heck out of there. (laughs) Right. So um, it's a, it's a tightrope that we walk, you know, I don't want to burn any bridges and I don't want to have people think that I'm being disrespectful or dismissive or judgmental. Um, I'm supposed to be objective. You know, I'm supposed to be searching for the story and reporting the story. Um, And I don't always like what they do. Sometimes I love it. They don't always like what I do. Sometimes they love it. And I, I think there's nothing that ever could change about that. What do you think? Well, I think that journalists in general um, fulfill an unbelievably important role in a Republican democracy. And I think that upholding the First Amendment is probably the most critical of all of portions of the Bill of Rights. And the press have a tremendous power to influence and shape all the argument within the public square. Investigative journalists, I think in particular, serve an incredibly important role. Uh, There are numerous issues that impact our quality of life, and not all of them rise to a criminal prosecution where the cops can intervene. Even for those that do, right, the the cops and the detectives have to keep taking new cases. So whenever the trail goes cold or the caseload gets too big, people like investigative journalists are kind of left alone to continue shining a light on the victims and the tragedies that government agencies don't have the time, the staffing, or the ability to pursue. And... So in that role, I think folks like you have an incredibly important ability to help secure justice for those forgotten or abandoned by other aspects of this system. And I'm grateful that people like you are willing to step into that breach. Thank you. I I, um, agree with you. And that has been one of the joys or triumphs of my life is to be able to, you know, shine a light on things that people otherwise would not know about Mm -hmm. if someone is harmed or deceived or misled or financially or physically um, destroyed. Um, Yes, we can, you know, we can show where the system has holes. We can show where the system has problems. We can show, um, we can make, we can, we can shine a light on people who have been forgotten or left behind. And, And that's what we do. And we rely on the public to point us in the right direction. Some of the time, you know, sometimes people think, Oh, well, um, nobody cares about me. And, and it's, you know, journalists, investigators, investigative reporters like I am who, who do, who do care. Um, and so we can make a lot of difference. I mean, I've gotten people's homes out of foreclosure and millions of dollars mm-hmm. in funds and restitution and laws have changed as a result of our stories. And, you know, we, the 911 system in Massachusetts was having issues, emergency responders, mm-hmm police and firefighters being sent to the wrong address because the system, I know thousands of times a year because the system didn't work properly. And we uncovered why that was happening. And um, that was, that problem was resolved as a result of that. Now, 
that's because we had the time and the resources and cared about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to go to the attorney general's office in order to, to have him force the state to hand over the records about how many mistakes there were um, yes. in 911 response. So yeah, it's a battle all the time, but look mm-hmm. how much difference can be made uh, when we persevere. So I so totally agree with you. I mean, they, I had a news director once who said that an investigative reporter comes to town and stays until everyone hates them. <laughs> so, you know, that this is what I've been doing for the past, you know, four decades or whatever. If, if I'm at your door, you're not mm-hmm. going to be happy a lot of the time. Yes. Now, if someone were to write a story about an investigative journalist in Boston, maybe say one that's married to a high-powered and respected defense attorney, and maybe <laughs> just for fun, let's say that a journalist also writes acclaimed fiction in her spare time. Uh, if that author were to pin a character based on you, what would you most want to see them get right about her? Oh, that's so not, <laughs> that's iffy. Ah, um, uh, you know, I... When I, when I wrote my first novel, Primetime, which was however many years ago that was, I mean, 14, I think, and I'm just, you're the first to hear this, I just typed the end of my um, next novel, my 12th novel. Um, Congratulations. I, you know, I, I, I can't believe it. I'm just like not even in my chair because I'm floating so much. <laughs> yes. It, I mean, it still has to be superly revised, but there's a story mm-hmm. there now in there somewhere. So I'm really happy about that. But when my when I started writing my first book, Primetime, which is about an investigative reporter in Boston, um, shockingly, uh, my editor said, what is the one characteristic that you think that people should know about this character. And it took me a while to figure it out. I got, I, I could have one word and I wound up with determined, determined. Mm. Um, and I, and I, and I think of determined in a good way uh, that she um, is determined to do good, determined to do the right thing, to determined to be fair and unswayed by powerful forces that, that might want to stop her. I mean, if I had, you know, I, I, I'm so, I'm so baffled by how you came up with an investigative reporter, also a crime fiction author who's married to a criminal defense attorney. (laughs) Fictional. Um, And I, and I do think now that um, my characteristic of myself is that I try to be open-minded now. I mean, I, you know, determined has evolved into open-minded that, you know, maybe there's something that I haven't thought of. Maybe there's some place that I haven't looked. Maybe there's some question that I haven't asked. Um, and whatever emotion that is, that curiosity um, and almost the confidence that I can find out if I just keep trying. Um, there is a wonderful quote from Thomas Edison who said, um, when you think you have exhausted all of the possibilities, remember this, you haven't. And I think about that every day. In my experience, writers that I've met, I've often been the most avid readers. And so I wonder if you have a favorite fictional investigator or PI or someone that you consistently read um, in, uh, or watch in books, TV, or film. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite character or PI. You know, I have a huge crush on Lord Peter Whimsey, I have to say, from the time that I was in high school. And also Inspector Morse. You know, I know he's morose and mm-hmm. kind of unpleasant, but I think I, I love Morse. 
I think he's brilliant. Harry Bosch, um, yeah. of course, Kinsey Malone. You know, I, I'm, I'm also always looking for new, um, new stories and new people. And, you know, these, the questions about, well, who's your favorite book and who's your favorite character will just send me into a clamor of, of fear because I, yes. you know, after this interview is over, I'll start, I mean, I'm going to email you with the whole list of characters <laughs> that I love. Sherlock Holmes, you know, it, I'm still, I still could read the Conan Doyle books and be delighted with how, you know, the voice and the story and the, um, you know, the, the structure of the, of the mystery. Um, this is a terrible answer, but I mean, how am I supposed to say who my favorite uh, PIs and detectives are? I could go on forever about that. I'd say that's a very typical answer on this show, um, which leads me to my last question, which mostly because it's fun for me. But based on that last answer, Hank, and God forbid it should come to pass, but if you were to wake up tomorrow and find that you've been murdered, what fictional investigator would you assign to your own case? <laughs> I love that this is radio because you can't see that my face is just like, oh my <laughs> darling, how do I know? Um, well, I, you know, really, I bet I would want to have um, Perry Mason and Paul Drake because they never lost. You know, they always, no, no, he was a defense attorney. All right. So let me think about this. Who? Let me start over with this. Um, it's your who, murder. You can assign anybody you want. Yeah, I well, you know, Perry Mason and Paul Drake, they never they never lost, but um they would get my murderer if they got the wrong guy, if the police got the wrong guy, then this is let's mm -hmm. just start this whole question all over. Now I've tangled myself into it. <laughs> all right, who what detective would I want to have investigate my murder? That is the saddest little question. Um well Sherlock Holmes. I guess Sherlock Holmes. Um, because no matter how twisted and convoluted and sinister and terrible my murderer was um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson mm -hmm. could discover the answer or Morse or Miss or Miss Marple or Poirot um, Kinsey Malone could find the murderer again now I'm going to be thinking about this for the rest of the day. Thank you so much. <laughs> Contemplating my own justice. You know, there you have it. What a brilliant question. Who would you pick now um, that you've made us answer this? Yeah, you're the, like, I think this is going to be episode number 80, and you're the first person who's asked. Um, I would opt for something of a task force with a competent investigator and a revenge artist just in case they escaped justice for a technicality because of a good defense attorney. So, yeah. As the wife of a defense attorney, I would say it's not a technicality. It's the law. It's not a technicality. It's the law. Um, but now you've made me think maybe I would just want the Justice League of America. I think I would want uh, Bosch and Mitch Rapp. Okay. Yeah, that's a good combo. Very, very good combo. I am so sincerely grateful for, for your time, Hank, and, and talking to us. I already have the entire interview for next book release put out because of all the questions I didn't have time to get to today. Um, I'm Well, thank I, you. You know, I, yeah. as I said, you're the first to hear that the new book, it's called The First to Lie. Um, the first draft is finished, and this radio show is the first moment that anybody has ever heard that. So 
um, cross your fingers for me, and it'll be out August the 4th of 2020. But right now, the murder list is at the forefront. So I hope your listeners um, will check it out. Absolutely. And I I appreciate the scoop. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a joy. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been investigative journalist and acclaimed bestseller, Hank Philippi Ryan. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.